when you face circumstances that are stealing your joy, remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of His promises to never leave you and never forsake you. Remind yourself that He is now and forever your Father and that you will soon know real, lasting, uninterrupted joy in His presence. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part two of Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. The Apostle Paul poses a challenging question for believers in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. How can you become spiritually stable? Well, as you'll learn today, spiritual stability begins with living in harmony with other believers. Secondly, you must determine to respond to life circumstances with joy. And thirdly, you must make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? So what are you known for? Are you known for being gentle and kind, or are you impatient and reactive? Do you respond to life's circumstances with joy and peace, or are you ruled by anger and anxiety? Are you spiritually stable or spiritually immature? Let's join Tom now as we discover more from God's Word on The Word Unleashed. First of all, understand how important resolution is. Notice verse 2. Paul says, I urge you. Literally, the Greek word is to beg, to plead. He says, I plead with you. I beg you. And he repeats the word twice. Notice how he says in English as in Greek, the word urge before each of their names. It's as if Paul turns to one of the ladies in the congregation and he says, I plead with you. I urge you. I beg you. And then he turns to the other and he says, I beg you. And he mentions them by name. That's unparalleled in the writings of Paul for those who are faithful to the truth to sort of bring them up publicly. You see, we don't tend to think of disagreements as a major issue, but they were for Paul because Paul could see what could eventually come. It could eventually divide the church. Understand how important resolution is. Listen, if you get into a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ, don't let it lie. Resolve it. How do you resolve the issues? Understand how important it is? Work at personal resolution. Work at personal resolution. He says to these ladies, I want you to get together and work at complete understanding. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind, to have the same mindset in the Lord. Paul's already told us. Look back at Philippians chapter 2. He already has laid the foundation for what he's urging these ladies to do. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love united in spirit intent on one purpose he says listen let me appeal to you on the basis of the common spiritual resources we all enjoy and let me appeal to you on the basis of the one purpose we have in life which is the gospel and jesus christ Whatever you're disagreeing over, it isn't that important. And then he goes on to say, verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Boy, you know how many disagreements would be resolved if we took that approach? 
But he said, here's how you resolve it. But what happens if that doesn't work? What if the two ladies can't get it together? What if they can't work it out? Well, there's another step you can take. Verse 3, get a third party involved. Get another mature believer if necessary, but don't leave it unresolved. Notice he says, verse 3, indeed, true companion, true yoke fellow. Now, we don't know who that is. It's reasonable to assume that it was either one of the elders of the church in Philippi, or it may have been um, one of Paul's traveling associates that he had assigned there. We don't know, but the Philippians obviously knew. Regardless, he says, I want you to help these women. Come alongside these women, because unresolved disagreements, listen to this, unresolved disagreements will eventually produce settled conflict. You say, well, what happens if after all of that we really still disagree, if we can't resolve it, and if we agree that the issues are too important to just overlook? Well, there's only one thing left to do, and that's to graciously part ways, but without sowing discord. Paul and Barnabas' example is a great one. In Acts 15, as we saw, they parted ways, and yet there's every indication that they remained close friends. But the key is, don't become the flashpoint for division in the church. The first step to spiritual stability, Paul says, is to resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. The second step to spiritual stability is found in verse 4. Determined to respond to life circumstances with joy. Determined to respond to life circumstances with joy. Notice verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. You see, for Paul, joy is an indispensable element of the Christian life. And this letter, this brief letter, sets forth this theme of joy like no other. We've already seen it several times. We saw it in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Chapter 3, verse 1. And now he returns to it here again with an unqualified command, rejoice always. Now, can we just be honest with each other? If anybody else had written us a letter and said, all right, here it is, I want you to rejoice always, what would our first response have been? (laughs) Yeah, right. There's a guy out of touch with the real world. He must not understand my circumstances. He must not understand my situation. But the Philippians knew better. They couldn't respond that way to Paul, and neither can we. You see, Paul had an incredible credibility with the Philippians. You see it in Acts 16. We won't turn there, but you remember the story in Acts 16 when the church was founded, a story, I'm sure, that was still spread by the members of the church. Paul saw Lydia, the first European convert, come to faith in Christ, and then he was followed by a slave girl. And you remember the story how... She kept following him day after day, and Paul eventually turns around and he casts the demon out of her, and she becomes gloriously saved and one of the charter members of the church. And, of course, her owners didn't like it, those who were profiting by her fortune-telling. And they have Paul arrested. They accuse him of sedition and terrible things, and those who led the city agreed. They had his clothes stripped and had him and Silas beaten with rods. And then they tell the jailer, lock him up, and make sure it's done securely. So we're told the jailer takes them, puts them in the inner prison, and puts their feet in stocks. I don't deserve this. I'm here serving you. How could you let this happen to me? No. You know the story. They're singing at midnight and praising God. There's joy in the the midst of the worst circumstances. 
Now Paul, as he writes this letter to the Philippians, he's a Roman prisoner again, and he has been for almost two years. And for those two years, a death threat has hung over his head. Possibility of execution. And if that isn't bad enough, Christians in Rome are criticizing him for how he's handled himself and are even trying to make his circumstances worse. So Paul isn't writing these words from some chalet on the south of France. He's not writing them as he sort of takes a break from paddling around in the Bahamas. He's in a terrible situation. (laughs) But this kind of trouble wasn't new to Paul. This was like the story of his life. Trouble was Paul's middle name. Look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day have I spent in the deep. This guy's like trouble for his middle name. He's like that guy in Little Abner. You remember the cartoon that the cloud just followed him everywhere he went? Like, maybe you should get a different job. Verse 26, I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Oh, and by the way, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I may not be qualified to tell you to rejoice in everything, But Paul is. Not a person sitting under the sound of my voice has come close to enduring what Paul has endured. And the Philippians knew it too. And he says to them and he says to us, Rejoice always. Notice he doesn't say, Just hang in there and maybe things will get better. No, he says, I want your, literally says, I want you to be filled with joy. There's a sense in which it's a little embarrassing to have to be reminded to be joyful as a Christian, isn't it? I mean, after all, our sins are forgiven. We've been declared righteous before God, our Creator. We've been given the Spirit as a seal of our future inheritance. We've been adopted by God as His own children. We have eternity and eternity of joy before us. So it's a little embarrassing to have to be reminded, but if we're honest, we don't remember. Joy is a part of what we've inherited as Christians. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says the kingdom of God is a kingdom of joy. Nehemiah 8.9 says the joy of the Lord is to be our strength. What is this joy? Some confuse joy with happiness. You see, happiness is always tied to our circumstances. You're happy when the circumstances are good. But joy is never tied to circumstances. You see that hinted at even here in Philippians 4 because he says rejoice always. Nobody has good circumstances Always. You look at some other texts and you see him using this word joy and he, he puts it together with affliction, trouble, pressure. Joy is completely unrelated to our circumstances. Notice he says, he commands us to rejoice and to do it always. That means in every circumstance with no exceptions and as long as we live, rejoice. You say, well, that sounds good, but it doesn't happen, and I don't know how it can happen. Well, Galatians chapter 5 says this kind of joy is the product of the Spirit in our lives. Galatians 5.22 says joy is the fruit of the Spirit. But here in Philippians 4, we do see a key to how we can maintain that kind of disposition, this kind of state of mind. Philippians 4, he says, rejoice in 
the Lord. There's the key. You see, this state of mind can only flow from a right theology. It flows, joy does, from a settled conviction that God is absolutely sovereign over my life and circumstances. You find yourself perhaps today in some kind of difficulty, some kind of trouble. Imagine what it would do to your joy if you really believed and embraced that whatever you're enduring right now, God is in control and he's always in control. If you really believed that God's promises towards you never change, that he will use this for good even as he's promised, if you really believed that God's character never changes, that even in the midst of trouble, you could say with Jeremiah, even as his city is destroyed in Lamentations, he says, I looked at you and I saw great is your faithfulness. I saw that your mercies are new with every morning. Listen, God's character doesn't change in the midst of your trouble. And God's relationship with you will never change. Listen, if you and I really believed those things, if we really believed that God is always in control, that His character never changes in the midst of my troubles, that His promises toward me never change, and that His relationship with me never changes, then you can have joy. You can have joy if you're confident that whatever circumstances you find yourself in, they are ordered by the sovereign hand of God, and He means them for your good and for His glory. But there's another mindset that builds joy. It's remembering that this life is short and eternity is coming. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, you're looking for Christ to come back and to truly be delivered from everything. And he says, In this, that is in the return of Christ, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You see, many Christians look for their ultimate joy and satisfaction here. If you do that, let me tell you, you're in for a terrible disappointment. That's so short-sighted. Keep your eyes on eternity, and you will be joy. You'll have joy. You'll be joyful. You remember the parable Christ tells in Matthew 25 about the servant who is faithful? And he says this to them in verse... 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've heard that all your lives. Listen to the rest of the verse. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Listen, folks, this life is about serving. It's filled with trouble and difficulty, as God designed it to be. But this isn't all there is. The time is coming when if you're faithful, he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I love Psalm 1611. Puts it this way. He says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Listen, don't look for fullness of joy here. Don't expect it here. You can enjoy joy to a measure here, but in God's presence, you will experience perfect, unending, unmitigated joy. I hate to say this, but if you aren't being joyful in every circumstance of life, then according to Paul, you're what? Probably because you aren't focusing on the Lord and you aren't focusing on eternity. And that's true of me as well. We're all tempted to look at our circumstances and to get our eyes off of the Lord and off of eternity. And when we do that, it steals our joy. When you face circumstances that are stealing your joy, 
Remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of His promises to never leave you and never forsake you. Remind yourself that He said He will use whatever you're facing for your good and for His glory. Remind yourself that He's always in control and that none of this is happening outside of His purpose. Remind yourself that He is now and forever your Father and that you will soon know real, lasting, uninterrupted joy in His presence. We all have known people who have exemplified this kind of joy in the midst of trouble. Sheila and I were talking this morning about a gentleman that has exemplified this in our lives. A man who was a professor of both of ours. Sheila knew him before that. His name is Dr. Walt Fremont. Dr. Fremont used to say in class many, many times, Praise the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And I have to say as a student, I thought many times, I wonder how deep that really goes. He seems just a little too quick to say it, proven that it was deep. Fifteen, almost 15 years ago now, Dr. Fremont was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. About 10 years ago, he lost the ability to get around and even to speak, and he's been confined to a, what amounts to a hospital-slash-convalescent home for those 10 years. At first, he could use a computer and sort of type out a few things, but Sheila visited him recently and when we were back in that area. And now he has a board, a little whiteboard sort of thing, and it's divided into squares, and on that, in those squares are questions that he likes to ask. How are you doing? How's your family? There are things he needs for himself if he needs help from the nursing staff, and then there are verses and sayings that he likes to remind people of. He can't speak them, but as he communicates, he just takes his finger and best he can, he points to a place on the board. Sheila tried to ask him how he was doing, and he kept instead simply asking and turning the question around to how she was and how our family was. And she said his eyes were absolutely filled with joy. You could see them dancing from behind a body that's decaying. And at one point, she, she was reminded of the fact that the nurses love to go in his room because he's so joyful. He looks he looks at the sunset, and he has a little note on his board that says, Isn't it a beautiful day? And as she was complimenting him for the way, the attitude with which he's handled all of these ten years in the hospital, a very bright mind confined to a dying body, and when she tried to compliment him, he pointed to a place on his board, and she leaned over to look and read what it said, and it said simply this, God gets all the glory. May God help us to rejoice in our circumstances, even as men and women like he have set such a great example. How can you become spiritually stable? Follow the steps that Paul lays down here in Philippians 4. Resolve to live in harmony with the other Christians. Secondly, determine to respond to life circumstances with joy. And the third step, and we just look at it briefly, is make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. Make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. Notice verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. It's interesting how Paul puts it, isn't it? He doesn't say have a gentle spirit. He says be known for a gentle spirit. Make it your ambition. Make it your reputation. What is it you desire to be known for? Your good looks? Your sense of humor? Your wealth? Your connections with the powerful? Or perhaps you're a little more pious. You want to be known for your prayer life, for your teaching, for the books you read, for your theological acumen, for your ministry. Paul says, pursue this instead. 
be known by all men, that is, those within the church and those outside the church, for your gentle spirit. Paul uses this word in 1 Timothy 3 where he says it's required of an elder. He uses this word in Titus 3, 2 where he says it's how we should respond to the unsaved. In James 3.17, he says the wisdom that comes down from God that all of us as believers have received teaches us this quality. So what is it? What is this gentleness? Well, there's no one English word that captures this Greek word, but these are some good translations. Sweet reasonableness, big-heartedness, or here's a word we use sometimes, graciousness. Aristotle contrasted this word with the idea of strict justice. He said it refers to the generous treatment of others that doesn't insist on the letter of the law. It's similar to our expression, cut people some slack. Be gentle. Be gracious. One commentator says it is that considerate courtesy and respect for others which prompts a person not to be forever standing on his rights. It's the opposite of a harsh contentious, self-seeking attitude. It's looking out for others and being concerned about them. Let me just ask you, are you known for being gentle, for being gracious, for being kind with people? Paul tells us why we should. Notice verse 5. Here's a reason. Because the Lord is near. What does that mean? The Lord is near. Well, near could be a reference to space. That is, Christ is personally close to us. But probably better to understand it as near in the sense of coming soon. Paul says, don't be quick to assert your rights to defend yourself because the Lord is coming. He will vindicate your cause and you want Him to be gracious to you so you be gracious to others. The apostle says, you want spiritual stability? You want to stand firm in the battle? Then you must, first of all, resolve to live in harmony with other Christians. Secondly, you must determine to respond to life circumstances with joy. And thirdly, you must make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. Thomas Jonathan Jackson was born in what is now Clarksburg, West Virginia. He had a strong military background at the start of the Civil War. He was trained in the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He was recognized as a hero in the Mexican War. And at the start of the Civil War, he served as professor of physics at VMI, the Virginia Military Institute. And he also instructed and drilled cadets in artillery tactics. All that experience justified Jackson's rank as brigadier general at the first major battle of the Civil War near Manassas, Virginia. That's where he came to be known as Stonewall Jackson. His famous nickname was first given to him by a friend of his from West Point, General Bernard B. on the battlefield at the first battle of Manassas in 1861. This name referred to Jackson's steadfastness under fire. Jackson, you've probably heard the story, was trying to motivate his men. And he was riding around on the back of his horse in the face of the enemy and with bullets passing right and left, barely missing him, encouraging his men into the battle. Jackson's demeanor inspired B, General B, to shout to his troops, he said, look men, there is Jackson standing like a stone wall. Let us determine to die here and we will conquer. May God help us to stand firm in the spiritual battle in which we're engaged like that. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. Tom will have part three for you on our next broadcast as he once again brings us to God's Word. Now, before we leave you today, Tom has some closing thoughts. Tom? You know, Paul isn't only teaching us about spiritual stability, he certainly modeled it. And here he just explains in such clear and practical terms how you and I can enjoy the very same stability he did. It starts with living in harmony with other believers and then determining to respond to the circumstances in our lives with joy and then making it our ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. When those things are true in our lives, along with the others that we'll learn in the days to come, we can enjoy great spiritual stability. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our email address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. That's 1-877-577-WORD. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. We thank you for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.